0: Ever wish you had a reset button? What would a reset look like in your life? Have all experienced disruptive changes, profound loss, abnormalities, been on the brink of burnout, we want to offer you hope, encouragement, guidance. God promises life and life everlasting. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm John Morrison. I was preaching here a few weeks back. Uh, But I I hope you enjoyed your vacation away from me. But uh, anyhow, uh, so good to be here today again. And today we're wrapping up our Reset Series. And I was thinking last week, you know, Samuel Nassif talked about resetting our words out in the world and and what we do and what we say and the message that we hold out to people. And uh, I was thinking how truly remarkable it is to have two young people like Samuel and his wife Renee just actively sharing Jesus with people far from God. This young people, I mean, they are a great model. And so I thought it was awesome that he was willing to do that message and that he lives it out and is doing it. And it's a great example to our young people, you know, to follow how God can use you as a light in your generation. So if you missed that message or if you missed uh, Dr. Boatman, I call him Dr. Boatman, but he's Paul to our congregation but, uh, but if you missed either of those messages, I encourage you to go online and enjoy those. Uh, we're very blessed to have such uh, deeply devoted servants in our midst and building up the kingdom of God. So uh, those are a couple of great guys. Uh, this morning, I want to talk about this idea of resetting our relationship with the world. And Samuel kind of hit the, the angle of words and evangelism and preaching the gospel but, uh, but I want to expand and continue this conversation a little further. Uh, what, after all, should the Christian's relationship to the world be? You know, Jesus in John 17 talked about being in the world but not of the world. Like, what does that look like? What does that mean? How are we to have a relationship with the world that's redemptive and helpful uh, to God's purposes? Uh, for a long time, Christianity has functioned as a dominant Religion in the West, and by the West I mean like all of Europe and the Americas, and historically the Christian influence was so strong here that many uh, refer to America as a Christian nation from its founding, and, and, uh, you know, that's how strong the influence was, and there is even amendments and things to make the United States a Christian nation, just to show you the strength of it. Uh, And probably back in the 30s and 40s, uh, the turn of the century maybe, uh, that's when that was at its peak. But the obvious problem with calling America a Christian nation is that very little that's done in Washington or Hollywood or on Wall Street or even on Main Street is Christian. In fact, uh, the name of God is blasphemy among the nations because of our national character. People look at the things going on, and they're like, if that's a Christian nation, I don't want nothing to do with Christianity. And so if America is indeed a Christian nation as it is behaving, uh, there are just as many Christians out there who want a divorce than who want to salvage any marriage between Christianity and our two-party system and all that. So there's a lot of difference of opinion and attitudes out there among Christians about uh, this idea of America being a Christian nation, and should we endeavor for that to be the case? And all this, uh, there are people uh, with various agendas to make America more Christian, and uh, and I just want to ask the question: I want us to wrestle with this a little bit. To what extent can a nation like America operate with integrity as a Christian nation? To what extent can any nation act with integrity? As God's instrument, to what extent can any one political party be like the party of Jesus or God's party? You know, should making America Christian again uh, should that be the focus of a church like Lakeside? Should it be the focus of our leaders, our staff, and whatnot? Uh, what did Jesus think about these kinds of issues, and and the apostles in the early church? And did they see themselves as nation builders or nation rebuilders? I think, if anything, we'd be looking at rebuilding a Christian nation more than anything with the way things have deteriorated. This past week I was reading an editorial out of the New York Times and uh, it's great to read those just for perspective and just to see the the, the difference of thought on a lot of different matters. But, but there is an uh, editorial about What comes after the religious right? And uh, the author, Nate uh, Hotchman, describes some of the titanic political shifts that are occurring all around us, and it's not news to us, but he points out how the conservative political project is no longer specifically Christian, Uh, that the the conservative uh, project is no longer even evangelical-driven. So you no longer have a culture war that's being waged by uh, religion versus secularism or evangelicals versus atheists or or however you might want to frame it. But what you really have now is you have all these strange bedfellows that are coming together. So you might have like Catholic traditionalists, but you might have orthodox Jews. You might have middle American small business owners. You know, capitalists. You might have like skeptical liberal atheists. You might have alt-right people with a nationalist agenda. Uh, You certainly have evangelicals, but you have all these people that are vastly different from each other that are now comprising of the right and uh, of this conservative push. And so uh, the pendulum uh, is swinging to the right in our nation right now. And a new kind of conservatism is emerging. And it is a strong, strong wave. And so the point is is that there are uh, all these groups that are uniting, not out of some religious orientation. There's all these groups that are coming together not because of some Christian worldview or Christian ideal or faith-based kind of awakening or anything of that nature. But you have people coming together with cultural and uh, lots of other uh, ethnic agendas and, and visions and all sorts of things. And so uh, the editorial says, you know, as Christians, we may find ourselves as disenfranchised by the newly emerging conservatism as we did by the old left or any other thing. And so it's kind of interesting that uh, whatever it does emerge as the influence on our nation We may have very little, as Christians, control or sway over whatever that may become. And and we may dislike that just as much as we've disliked other things. So this issue remains, where do we find ourselves in the midst of all these titanic shifts that are happening? You know, swings to the left, swings to the right. And, And how ought we relate to the world as Christians? So I thought of this idea of a Christian nation. And uh, I've been studying scripture, like I, I've, been, I've just been saturating myself, I'm reading all this stuff, and there is something that really jumped out at me, and it's this, if there is indeed a Christian nation, the good news is, we are part of it, amen? But it may not be exactly what we think it is, and uh, we are indeed part of a Christian nation as God's people, the church, but the nation that we're part of is described in 1 Peter, Chapter Two, Peter addresses the church itself. He addresses the kingdom of God as a nation. Isn't that interesting? That the church, not just Lakeside, but the conglomeration of Christians worldwide, we are all a nation. So let me, let's look at a couple of verses here. First uh, Peter, Chapter Two. This is this helps me think of like what is my identity, right? And, and how ought I be in the world or relate in the world? And, you know, when things in this nation may be going a direction or whatever, you know, my nation's okay. All right, so here we go. You are a chosen race. He's talking to the church, Pe- uh, Peter the Apostle. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. Everybody has a part to play uh, building up the kingdom and the body of Christ as Paul Boatman laid out. But look at this. You're a holy nation, a holy nation. You are a people for God's possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is our mandate as the church to be a nation, but not the kind of nation that a lot of people think of. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy... But now you have received mercy. Now the way Peter addresses the church is he addresses them as a dispersed nation. So they are a globally dispersed people. They are dispersed means that they're scattered, right? God's people throughout history, they were in Israel, but they would get taken captive and they'd get scattered across Assyria, scattered across Babylon, scattered across the Roman Empire. The history of God's people is that God always scatters his people globally. He allows them to be scattered, sometimes through persecution, sometimes through discipline, sometimes through uh, a lot of different dynamics. But that's the reality of God's people, the church, is that we are a dispersed nation, that we don't have a geographical limitation or a purely geographical definition. And so we're, we're... Dual citizens in the sense that, yeah, we're citizens of America, and there's a geographical footprint for America. But we're part of an even greater nation, and that's the kingdom of God. Our identity as a nation, a Christian people, is that we're in Christ. That's the defining thing for citizenship, is that if you're in Christ, you're a citizen of heaven. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God, and that's our identity. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, dear friends. I urge you as strangers and exiles, you know, uh, aliens, not a term that is uh, endearing to describe people that are here from other places, but that's the word in the Greek is that we're aliens. We're strangers, we're outsiders. Uh, we're exiles, which means we've been uprooted and we find ourselves in a place that doesn't quite feel like our home. And I think a lot of people feel that way because of the things the deteriorations that are taking place. But our identity, you know, we're strangers and exiles. And we're being urged to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. But the word there is nations. Conduct yourself honorably among the nations. Some are in Rome, some might be here, some might be there. You know, today, some might be in America, you might be in... Mexico, you might be in Europe, you might be in Russia, you might be in communist China. We have people of the kingdom of God in every nation on earth. And, and how ought we conduct? Conduct yourself honorably amongst the nations so that when people slander you as evildoers, they'll actually observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. We're to have this saltiness. And we're like a light to the nations, and we're scattered, and we're one nation, but we're a dispersed nation as God's people. And so uh, this is great advice. I love uh, what he says next, verse 15 and 16. It's God's will that you should silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as a free people. Don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but serve as God's slaves. Honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, honor the emperor, okay? So this verse is holding out this picture that we don't need to be antagonistic, and we don't need to become enemies of our own land, so to speak, or its own governance structure, or its own parties, or whatever it is, that we can do good, and we can live honorably. In the pastoral epistles, Paul encourages us to be in prayer for the nation that we're part of. In the Old Testament, in Jeremiah, you look at Jeremiah 31 and the following chapters in Jeremiah 31, God says, I got plans not to harm you, uh, to give you a future and a hope, to prosper you, all these things. But it's in the context of Israel being in Babylon. And there's a bunch of advice about seek the good of the city in which you find yourself. Seek the good of the people around you. It's the doing of good that silences the ignorance and the foolish talk of people around us. And so we should think of the church as a holy nation of God. We're scattered across the nations. Before we're subject to anyone else, we should see ourselves as God's slaves, right? And as God's slaves, as God's nation, we must prayerfully discern how best to live among the nations, wherever we may find ourselves dispersed. It looks one way in America, it may look another way if you're from India, another way if you're from Iran or China or Pakistan. Uh, There's different ways that you have to discern in order to survive and live within different hostile contexts. On Thursday of this week, I was in Chicago, I was with a group of pastors that are very passionate about reaching the city of Chicago, and I don't mean the suburbs, I mean the heart of the city of Chicago. And that is the stronghold. Chicago is one of the the hardest strongholds to penetrate for churches and church planning uh, in the United States by far, like Chicago man that 's a hot spot and these guys are uh, that i 'm sitting with uh, i'm sitting by a pastor from Iran who is in the city reaching Middle Eastern Iranian people, and I was next to two pastors from India they're from different parts of india and all of them had grown up in non-Christian nations, but I was sitting there thinking like, but we're all one nation, the three, like they're all working, you know, they're, they're working through citizenship and all these different things, but they have a heart for reaching the city of Chicago. And, uh, but as we spoke together, I was like, you know, we were eating together, we were dreaming together, and we were planning together as fellow citizens of a nation that wants to reach the nation's. And we prayed about, you know, like, what's it look like to shine the light of the gospel more brightly in the very darkest corners in which we live. And uh, it was just really cool. You know, like, that's our identity. It transcends citizenship narrowly. Now, I want to go a little further with this. How should we conduct ourselves within our host nation, within the United States, or wherever we may find ourselves? There's a lot of places that I could point to in Scripture, but one that I thought was particularly important was Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6 verses 10 and following offers some very timely and unconventional advice for how we ought to conduct ourselves in the world. Uh, If you're feeling disenfranchised, if you're feeling out of sync with the people around you, this is what we do about it. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. Uh, I think there's another verse there. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers and against the authorities, against the p- cosmic powers of the darkness, against evil the spiritual forces in heaven. This verse uh, makes me think of the old adage, Uh, something about don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Have you ever heard that before? Uh, We're kind of a knife and gun craze culture. We're a power-oriented culture, and we're a a militant culture in a lot of ways that, that when we don't like something, we're willing to attack it even in a physical way. And so you see uh, bombings, you see violence, you see people going to the streets, you see uh, damage being done, you see all sorts of things. On both sides, by the way. As God's people, let's not conduct spiritual warfare with a physical, material, worldly, earthly, political mentality. Uh, to, To approach the catastrophic things in our nation with a physical mentality would be very short-sighted. We need to take a spiritual view of things and understand that there's spiritual realities and powers and authorities in the heavenly realms that are behind the things that we detest. You read the book of Daniel, and Daniel's describing these nations that are going to sweep across and you know lay, weight, lay, lay uh, all kinds of problems On Israel, Babylon, Assyria, the Roman Empire, the Persians, all these different. And even though each nation has kind of like a physical identity, gold, silver, clay, whatever, they have a beastly character. And each nation has a spiritual prince uh, of Satan that is actually the power behind the face of the person that might be the king or ruler or Nebuchadnezzar or whoever it may be. So there's a beastly Spiritual reality that Daniel um, tells people to observe in his writings, and it 's the same thing here in Ephesians that we can 't fight a gunfight with a knife we can 't fight a spiritual battle with physical means. We have to pivot the way we think about things that you might be attacking <clears throat> a flesh and blood target <clears throat> and going after somebody, but that is a very short sighted thing. Uh, you take their life or you know whatever it is. Uh, it often opens up a whole hellstorm. So that's not the, the kind of fighting that we do as Christians. So we go on, Ephesians 6, 13 and following. <clears throat> For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Well, how do we stand? How do we resist? What's the resistance look like? Stand, therefore, with truth like a belt around your waist with righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with the readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, that's, that's a blanket statement, that's comprehensive, in every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now that's Ephesians 6. Verses 13 through 17. So let me just pause. So here we stand fighting. And one of our greatest weapons is the truth. When it comes to the kingdom of God, the end doesn't justify the means. Some people believe the kingdom of God is so great that maybe we would make compromises in order to achieve what we think is a spiritual result. And one of those compromises is to lie, right? Uh, I'm for the truth, not just wherever it leads. I'm for the truth because I believe the truth always accentuates God's glory. Truth that doesn't even necessarily serve our short-term interests. Truth that serves our long-term interests. All truth, whether it's momentarily advantageous or not, all truth accentuates The glory of God. We never, you know, you you drop the truth and your pants fall, you know, like you're going to humiliate yourself if you get on the wrong side of that, right? So we always hold on to the truth and never let it go. And the truth is impartial. The truth doesn't favor anyone, right? It favors God. It favors God's glory. Uh, The truth doesn't favor the left, nor the right, the top, nor the bottom. The truth just is. And there is no place on our lips, and and this is very important in how we relate to the world, there is no place for on our social media feeds, for example, for there to be slander, gossip, lies, misrepresentations, caricatures, you know, memes, propaganda. You know, we think that because it serves a short-term political interest, That we can become liars as God's people. That we can just spew all the same filth and innuendo and falsehoods that are out there as anybody. The means does not justify, the ends does not justify that means. We never let go of the truth. Even if it means losing in the short term. Uh, When we first built this building and came out here, there was uh, one of the first folks that showed up uh, and started worshiping with us was a, a a friend by the name of Ray Long. And Ray Long was a writer for the Chicago Tribune, he still is. And he was a writer for the State House downtown. And an investigative journalist and, and all kinds of crazy stuff. And he was sitting out here worshiping, and I got to know him, and we'd golf once in a while. And I realized, Ray is radically uh, different from me in a lot of ways. We had very different perspectives on a lot of stuff. And I was like, why are you attending Lakeside? You know, like, how, how do you tolerate me in the sermon, you know? Uh, thank you. And, uh, but anyway, Ray and I, we built a really good friendship. And the one thing that brought Ray and I together is our belief that the truth, you know, is the truth. And you got to tell the truth no matter, like, you got to let it stand no matter what its ramifications are in the short term. Uh, Ray just wrote a book that you might have heard of. It's called The House That Madigan Built. And this is a great book. And at the beginning of it, he says, well, we've talked, we've had, I'm reading this book, and I'm like, I've had these conversations with Ray in his car and over coffee. It's like, some people are going to read this and think, wow, he's really soft on Madigan. And some are going to read it and say, man, he he has an agenda to destroy Madigan. And that's what happens when you speak the truth is that, you know, people don't perceive you here, they don't perceive you here, you're kind of in this ambiguous middle, and and people are going to, but the truth is the truth. And, uh, you know, whether it's him writing about Madigan or him writing about Jim Ryan or whoever it is or, you know, we've had several governors that have gone to jail. He's written about all of them. So uh, he just, this is, I think, maybe a case study or an example of how as Christians we can stick to the facts and stick to the truth and let it just play itself out even if there's a a short-term disadvantage. So I just want to throw that out there for you to think about But Ray's a great, he's up in Chicago now stirring up trouble, so he's no longer downstate. We should never jettison the truth. We should never jettison our character. That just because something is to our advantage doesn't mean we should take it, right? We should always think about what is in the greatest good of God's glory, what's in the greatest good of people, even if something's being handed to us. Never violate your character. Uh... We shouldn't jettison our righteousness for a short-sighted advance, and that includes Christ's righteousness. Sometimes we think we need to like, remake Jesus into a slob like one of us in order to, like, we think that that helps, and I think we just let Christ's righteousness shine, and, and shine in stark contrast to ours if that's what is needed. Uh, we need to let the salt of Christ's righteousness sting. Where it needs to sting. And we need to let the light of Christ's righteousness blind the eyes of those that it needs to blind. So that like Saul, maybe we get to a place where people truly see. You know, Saul was blinded, but then he was able to see again. And then he was a spiritual man. we we got to let the righteousness, we got to let the truth uh, accomplish its effect. No matter what the short term might be for us. Now, we should neither jettison the gospel of peace. Now more than ever, people need to know the forgiveness and the salvation that's found in Jesus Christ. We have a lot to forgive each other of, but there's no base or moral framework for us to forgive each other because there's no gospel core worldview. So when we withhold the gospel from people, we're with really withholding the means of them being grace-giving and forgiving and charitable and all these things that we want people to be. The gospel is what creates a forgiving people, a forgiving nation, a gracious people. So now more than ever, people need to know the forgiveness of Christ. They need to be forgiven. People need the freedom and the sanctification from sin that the Holy Spirit can accomplish. You know, we see what happens when we live in the flesh. But the Holy Spirit can accomplish changes and true transformation in people such as what we long for. Now more than ever, People need the church to be the kingdom of Christ. They need the church to be that place of love, that family that accepts and, and, and where people build themselves up in love together. People need a church that operates like a holy nation, a, a, a church that embodies the highest ideals to which any nation can aspire. You know, America will never aspire to the ideals that the church can achieve. People need to know that in the gospel, there is true hope that can be found, not just victory over sin in Jesus, but victory over our flesh and the worst part of us and the most corrupting things about us. There can be victory over selfishness and lovelessness and isolation and alienation and violence, one against the other. There can also be, though, victory over death itself, victory of resurrection hope where death once reigned. The gospel must be proclaimed to every creature under the earth, every nation, every culture. We are a nation that is proclaiming hope to the nations as the church. So we can't give up our core message, the gospel. We can't give up our righteousness and character. We can't give up the truth. <clears throat> and neither should we stop abiding and trusting in Jesus' words. Uh, taking every thought captive and making it obedient to Christ guards our salvation There are so many ideologies and ideas and opinions and viewpoints and stuff out there that we just get saturated with. We shouldn't let a single word slip from our ear canal into our brains without taking it captive and subjecting it to the truth of Christ. A church that has learned to wield its sword, the word of God, is powerful to conquer any threat of evil. Uh, The only vulnerable Christian really is a swordless Christian. A Christian who daily abides in Christ's word cannot be defeated. You know, the, the word protects our minds. It protects us in so many ways. <clears throat> and let me mention that neither should we jettison prayer, okay, or denigrate prayer in any way. The word and prayer are the most spiritually lethal but also the most spiritually transformative weapons of war ever devised, and they're devised by God himself, They are able to destroy what needs to be destroyed and preserve what needs to be preserved. And without killing and having unnecessary collateral damage, right? The word and prayer, you can penetrate right down to the core of the problem. Like with a a surgeon's scalpel, dividing bone and marrow, uh, joint and and spirit and soul. There's nothing that the word of God can't sort out and separate out and, and, and address, The word of God in prayer. Whenever the church has had its back against the wall, historically, from the very beginning in the book of Acts, they went to the Lord in word and in prayer, and they found their way through it. Ephesians 6, 18 through 20. Pray at all times in the spirit with every prayer and request, and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Pray for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known the boldness, uh, with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this I am ambassador in change. Pray that I'd be bold enough to speak about it as I should. You know, there's a handful of prayers, passages in the New Testament that talk about praying for somebody that's sick or ill, and we should. There's a handful of prayers about Praying through our worries and our, and our anxieties. But I, I took some men recently, and we, we spent like an hour, hour and a half. It was a while, wasn't it, Mark? But I showed there's a boatload of verses about praying for the transformation of hearts and minds. There's a boatload. Like a 10 to 1 ratio at least. <clears throat> Maybe a 20 to 1 ratio that when you look at the substance of what's being prayed for in your Bible... Yes, pray for these these things that are personally concerning to us. But pray for changed hearts and changed minds. We shouldn't denigrate the power of prayer nor stop praying. You know, they said 85% of evangelicals voted for Trump. Well, are 85% of evangelicals praying for Biden? You know, like are we praying for our leaders? Are we praying for is prayer even a thing, right? Don't denigrate prayer. We should be leaning harder into prayer than ever before if we're truly concerned and want to see changes. Now, we as a church are a holy nation dispersed among unholy nations. We're waging not a political, physical, flesh and blood war, but spiritual warfare. We're using spiritual means, the word and prayer, and the word and prayer can get the job done as we lean into those. Let me mention one last thing that we must not stop doing, and that is being united. We have to stay united in Christ's love. Jesus warned us as the church explicitly that a house divided against itself cannot stand. There are many, many differences, deeply entrenched, worldly divisions and differences between most everybody in this room right now. And those divisions can easily be exacerbated and exploited by Satan to tear apart this nation that should be one that God has created in his church. Of all the things that Jesus could have prayed for at the end of his earthly ministry, he prayed for unity. John seventeen twenty through 26. I pray not only for these disciples and apostles, he's got a prayer for them too. I'm praying for those who will believe in me <coughs> through their word. That's us. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us that the world may believe that you sent me. I've given them the glory you've given me so that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me so that they may be completely one that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you've given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you however I have known you And they've known that you sent me, I made your name known to them, and I'll continue to make it known so that they, that the love you have loved me with may be in them, and I may be in them. Now, that's a mouthful. But Jesus is praying that his oneness with the Father, that as the Father has loved him and he's loved the Father, he's praying that we would know that love, but that we would also share that kind of love that we would be as one together with each other as the Father and Son are one. That, That unity is a priority and by our union as a nation, as God's kingdom, as his people, you see, that oneness, that love would be transformative. If ever there were a third weapon to add to our spiritual arsenal, I already mentioned the word of God and prayer. If I were to add, I don't think we'd call it a weapon but if we did, it would be love it would be love so I told you about these pastors that I was talking to and they're in Chicago and I've, I realized immediately that I can come here to Lakeside and I can preach the gospel and I can conduct my weekly business I can go anywhere in this town I can talk to whoever I want and, do, and, and be unimpeded but that's not the case on the streets in Chicago in these places of worship where these pastors are trying to do ministry. There's gangs. There's all kinds of stuff, but there's religious strongmen uh, that that they encounter regularly, like Islamic clerics or nationalist Hindus. There's people from all over the world, and on the streets of Chicago, these powerful men confront these young preachers. This one guy from India. I mean, he's just a, a young guy. He's 20. I mean, he's he's just getting started in ministry. And he has his life threatened. He has his family threatened. And he is told to cease his gospel work by these other religious folks. There's total intolerance. And there's no police. You can't, there's nobody that is going, you can appeal your case to. And so what do you do in that kind of threatening environment? I'm talking about Chicago, Illinois, but also over in India and communist China, wherever you may find yourself. Like, what's your play When there's real danger and threats, and I asked those guys, I said, what do you do? And the one thing that the threats of religious bullies can't work against is love. They said love. Love disarms the hate. It's so powerful. You you can see love just kind of like melt somebody that is an enemy of Christ. Uh, Love melts the religious bigotry. It melts the anger and the violence That self-sacrificial love of Christ, it just saturates through, right? It just bleeds through. And so this love is what God wants us to embody as his holy nation and his holy people. And it's the love of the Father and the Son, and may we have that same love, and may we be united, especially showing that love to each other. If we can't love each other, how can we teach the world to love? So... Love is that powerful play that transforms even the worst enemies of Christ. So I just wanted to kind of end this series by saying, like, what's it look like for us to hit the reset button out there? And we can continue together abiding in Christ's words, abiding in prayerful fellowship with the Father, Son, and Spirit, abiding in Christ's love and this love for one another. We're not defenseless, we're not weak. God has equipped us through his word, through prayer, through love. He has equipped us and modeled for us how to live and how to be in the world, but not of the world. So what's it look like to reset? Word, prayer, priority of love. So let's lean into that space. Next week we'll start a new series, and we're going to talk about some unconventional. It's Father's Day. Uh, some unconventional wisdom of what it looks like to lead from a spiritual framework instead of uh, a worldly gentile lorded over them power kind of like what's it look like to to lead out as men as women of god in this world and and to lead like jesus us next week so let's pray dear father thank you for your word for the guidance and clarity that it gives us and we pray that we'd be a people of word a people of prayer a people of love and that we would not be blast you would not be blasphemed but you would be glorified because of what we're becoming in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.